Welcome to The Mushroom Show. We are trying out a new format of the show already. I know it's already episode five, but originally we were doing this thing where we had two different shows. One was Mushroom Coffee, where me and Tegan were talking about all things mushrooms, all things supplements, all things fresh cap. And another show where we were bringing on guests, some of the movers and the shakers of the mushroom world. And we thought it might be better to just combine those two together, where we do one show, we're gonna call it The Mushroom Show, and we're gonna do news, we're gonna do updates, and also we're gonna bring on some awesome people for one-on-one conversations. We have Jeff Chilton, the president and founder of Namex today on The Mushroom Show, which I'm super excited about. But yeah, we're super excited to bring this new format. And also, you know, this is really just a way to connect with the mushroom community. We want to make this the one spot that you have to tune into if you want to be part of the mushroom revolution that's happening right now. And we're super excited to be part of it with you. So again, Jeff Chilton is coming up on The Mushroom Show. If you want to skip everything else and just go right to the interview, there are timestamps in the description. And if you're listening to this, maybe on Spotify, same thing, you can check out the timestamps in the description and you can jump right into the interview or any section of the interview with Jeff Chilton. So before we get into that, I did want to frame this conversation up a little bit. So Jeff Chilton is an absolute legend in the mushroom space. He's been around for a long time. He started his company, I believe it was in 1983, uh, but we'll let him talk all about that. It could have been 1989. I'll have to check my notes, but he started a company called Namex, which sells obviously medicinal mushroom powders, medicinal mushroom extracts. Namex stands for North American Medicinal Mushroom Extracts. But Jeff has done a lot of research in terms of mycelium on grain versus fruiting body, actually studying and researching what compounds are found in what different parts of the mushroom. He's a really interesting guy and he's obviously brilliant and has a really great take on all this stuff. So I'm super excited to jump into that conversation, but I thought I would first kind of frame it up. We're gonna be talking a lot you know, about a lot of kind of complex mycological stuff. A lot of you might already know about the mushroom life cycle and the different parts of the mushroom, but I thought it'd be helpful to frame it up before the conversation. So this, what you see on your screen right now is the mushroom life cycle. And that is one of the magical things about mushrooms is it works in a perfect circle. And we did do a whole video on this. So if you want to dive into this topic, you can go check out the video we just did, spores to mushrooms, the mushroom life cycle. But real quick, this is what it is. Basically mushrooms start or end as spores, they germinate, they turn into hyphae. You know, there's two different uh, types of spores, each spore containing half of the genetic material. Those turn into hyphae. When those two hyphae meet, they turn into something called mycelium. Mycelium will grow throughout a substrate. It will eventually turn into this little hyphal knot, which you see on your screen, which will eventually turn into a pinhead and just take all of that energy, all of the nutrients that the mycelium has been absorbing and push it into the fruiting body. And the only reason for the fruiting body from the point of view of the mushroom is to produce more spores and start the whole cycle over again. So if you really wanna understand mushroom supplements, which we're gonna be talking about a lot with Jeff, you really gotta understand the mushroom life cycle because this helps you kind of frame what parts of the mushroom is in what types of supplements, how some supplements might only contain mycelium, how some supplements contain fruiting body, how some might say they combine everything, even though that might not be entirely true. But this is really key to understanding not only mushrooms, but mushroom supplements as well. The other thing we'll really get into, and by the way, I took that image from uh, Jeff's white paper. He wrote a white paper all about um, medicinal mushrooms, which you can check out. We'll put a link to that in the description. But I also took this image from his white paper, and this is an image, it's like a cross section of a mushroom cell wall, a mushroom fruiting body cell wall. This is really important to understand, again, if you wanna understand all the different things about mushroom supplements and where the different compounds come from, because you might look at the back of a mushroom supplement and see beta-glucan, or it might list the amount of beta-glucans that are inside of the supplement. And where beta-glucans actually come from 
are the cell walls of the mushroom fruiting body. So if we look at this image, you can see this is the cell wall of the mushrooms right here. And this is this hard thing called chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N, it's pronounced chitin. And it's very similar to something like crab shell or you know the, the, the exoskeleton of a lobster. Uh, I think those are actually made up of chitin as well. But the bottom line is they're really hard and our bodies cannot properly break that down. And being that the beta-glucans are the beneficial compounds for mushrooms, specifically the ones that help our immune system, we need to find a way to actually make use of those beta-glucans. First of all, we gotta know where they come from, which is the mushroom fruiting body, uh, the cell wall of the mushroom fruiting body, as you can see in this diagram. But also we need to perform a series of extractions to actually pull those beta-glucans out and make them usable for our bodies. I'm hoping this kind of frames the interview with Jeff. Again, if you wanna check out this white paper, you can go over to his website, links are in the description. You can download the whole white paper. He did a lot of really cool studies on all sorts of different mushroom supplements, different parts of the mushroom, studying the compounds that were inside of them. It's really advanced, but it's really interesting if you wanna dive into that topic. So I hope that frames this conversation. And without further ado, we're gonna bring Jeff onto the Mushroom Show. So Jeff Chilton, so happy to have you on the Mushroom Show. Thank you so much for being here. Tony, thank you for inviting me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're honestly a legend in the mushroom space, specifically in the medicinal mushroom space. And I'm sure a lot of people watching this have probably already heard of you or maybe seen you on another podcast. But for those who haven't, um, I wanted to just do a really brief review of, of course, you know, you're new to this thing, right? You're, you're brand new to mushrooms, right? No, I'm just kidding. You've been, you've been involved in mushrooms for a very long time. So I'd just like you to do a brief kind of overview of your history with mushrooms and how you got up to this point where you're at today. Sure. Well, well, I was born in the Pacific Northwest, grew up in Seattle. It's probably the perfect climate for mushrooms. It's as good as anywhere in the world in terms of wild mushrooms. So it's the perfect space for me. Um, I went to the University of Washington and, you know, you have to remember this is the sixties, Tony. So, uh, at university, my field of study was actually anthropology, but I was really interested as well in, um, psilocybe mushrooms mm -hmm. as were a lot of people. I, I studied that. I, I actually took mycology courses as well at the university and look, very few universities have a mycology department. That's very rare. So I was able to take mycology courses. I put the two together and I was actually studying uh, ethnomycology, the use of mushrooms uh, in, uh, as for curanderos, curanderas, uh, so medicine for food. It was really an interesting time eating a lot of mushrooms. I, I mean, look, it was a very psychoactive time. So that was all around me. And, and look, we were also questioning the current order and looking at things and going, there's something wrong here. We want to broaden our base of understanding the world. Now, now when I got out of university, what do you do with a degree in anthropology? Well, not a lot. Right. I went to Mexico and I, I spent a year and a half in Oaxaca, Mexico, where they discovered magic mushrooms back in the 50s, the rediscovery of psilocybe mushrooms. And so I was down there following that trail kind of as part of my own, um, let's just say, experiential 
development and also part of my studies. And so I was back up in the mountains, uh, definitely found a lot of different psilocybe mushrooms, ate a lot of mushrooms when I was down there. And then again, um, coming back from Mexico, what do I do? What do I get a job doing? Well, there's a mushroom farm 60 miles down the road in Olympia, Washington. I went down to the mushroom farm. I applied for a job. Um, I was there for 10 years living with mushrooms. It was a very, very large agaricus farm growing 2 million pounds of agaricus a year. And listen, the beauty of it was that we also had a Japanese scientist there, the head of research and development, who I was able to work with as well. And he was growing shiitake, enokitake, and oyster mushrooms. So I actually was able to learn about growing those mushrooms. And, and listen, I was eating fresh shiitake mushrooms in the 1970s. Right. And, you know, today that seems, uh, of course, a lot of people are into mushrooms. A lot of people are growing shiitake and enoki and all sorts of oysters. But as you mentioned, you know, uh, in the 70s, way back then, you get mushrooms in a can. You know, depending on where you're at, you could probably get fresh button mushrooms or agaricus mushrooms. But things like shiitake and enoki, I mean, those were pretty foreign concepts to a lot of people, right? It wasn't wasn't commonly available. They were not in the market at all. So, so essentially I was able to not only learn how to grow them, which was fantastic. Look, I was so keen. If you can imagine, I was so keen. I loved being at the mushroom farm. And look, as you well know, being a mushroom grower yourself, mushrooms do not sleep. Right. <laughs> they, they are always growing. So, you know, on a mushroom farm, you, you literally are harvesting every single day of the years because we have, we have like uh, uh, eight crops in, uh, and they're on a, a, a basic 90-day cycle. So you have crops in every single stage. So it's just a constant flow of mushrooms. The harvesters have to get in there and get them off the bed. That means Christmas. That means New Year's. There is no holiday where you're not in there harvesting mushrooms. So it's it's quite a um, um, to be there and to be part of it and to just learn all about making substrates, all about the cropping cycle, what you know the the spawn running, how to make mushroom spawn. I mean, look, the seventies too was a really exciting time because there's a lot of people that I met and um, came together with that were not at the mushroom farm that were very interested not only in um, cultivation, but in wild mushroom, because at that time, you know, when I first went to Mexico in the, the early 70s, that's where the psilocybe mushrooms were. But then we found out that psilocybe mushrooms actually grew in Washington, Oregon, British Columbia. And the next thing you know, you have people all over the Northwest walking through pastures with their heads down, right? <laughs> looking at the ground for like psilocybe semilanciata. And, and it's just like, so it was a very interesting time in that sense. And there's a lot of people and we were coming together. We had conferences and, and uh, um, 
there we actually some of the conferences uh, we had people like um, Gordon Wasson, who was the man that went to Mexico in the fifties and rediscovered with a, a French mycologist the uh, uh, psilocybes growing down there, as well as people like Richard Evans Schultes, uh, Andrew Weil, all kinds of people that were in that whole. Uh, field of study. It was just a real uh, Albert Hofmann. Wow. Uh, I met Albert Hofmann during that period. I mean, can you imagine meeting people like that? And, and for the people who don't know, Albert Hofmann is the, the man who discovered LSD. Yep. So these conferences were were just amazing, incredible, and they brought together a lot of people. And so we were forming a lot of networks then around the subject of mushrooms. And what happened was that during that period where people were out, for example, looking for psilocybes wild cultivation, my, my role in a lot of these conferences was teaching cultivation. And it went from people, oh, I've got to go to Mexico now to people going, hey, I can actually cultivate mushrooms at home. And, you know, whether it was psilocybes or oyster mushrooms or shiitakes, that was all of a sudden a new thing, and a lot of people were really interested in it, and that kind of really started things off. Yeah, it would have been such a cool thing to be a part of because, yeah, all those names that you mentioned, I mean, these are all names that are absolutely legendary in the mushroom space, and it seems like we are going through another one of those kind of renaissance periods of mushrooms where it's becoming more and more popular again. We actually just did a video, uh, it might be out by the time you're watching this, about the rise of mushroom culture or the rise of mycophilia in North America, but really it's kind of the second wave, right? It's almost like the second rise. But the other thing that I wanted to dig into about that time period when you were connecting with people, you know, that was pre-internet. And I think, <laughs> you know, that's something that a lot of people today don't really frame properly because you know, if you wanted to learn about this stuff in, in the 50s, for example, you literally had to go to Mexico. And then people went to Mexico. They brought that information back to the, the Northwest. And then you were finding mushrooms there. And then, you know, there was you couldn't just log on to the shroomery or onto YouTube and learn how to do these things. And, you know, you actually contributed. You mentioned you did a lot of lecturing about growing mushrooms. But you actually wrote a book about this in 1983 uh, co-authored with Paul Stamets called The Mushroom Cultivator. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that book, what impact it had on the space. I mean, it's a it's a big book and, you know, I'm sure a ton of work went into that, especially at a time, again, when you couldn't just reference the internet. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you talk about that because that was a time where books were very important. And, and uh before I talk a little bit about the mushroom cultivator, in the 60s, when I was at university, one of the books that was one of my standard books for my, my research on this whole field was called Mushrooms, Russia, and History. And it was a book written by Gordon Wasson and his wife, Valentina. And Tony, this book, there was only 500 copies of this book printed. It was a large format book complete with watercolors that were done. It was, it was uh, um, bound and created in Italy on special paper. I literally had to go to the rare book room at the University of Washington, and you would sign in, you would go, you would sit down at a table, and they would go get this two-volume set 
and bring it down to you. <laughs> that was one of my primary reference works because in that book, Gordon Wasson talked about all the different uh, towns, little pueblos in, in Oaxaca that he visited when he was doing his studies during the 1950s. And what really started things off in terms of psilocybe was that in 1957, Life magazine uh, put out, and which is a, a large format, very mainstream magazine, put out an article, and it was called Great Expeditions, or, or, and it was a discovery of mushrooms that create visions in Mexico. And, you know, you know Tony, that just shows you the innocence of the 50s because it's like this was like can you imagine there are actually mushrooms <laughs> that cause visions it was just it was so interesting and, and it was a fabulous article and if, if anybody has not seen it if you can get a chance to see it it had beautiful watercolors of the mushrooms it had uh, the first photos of maria sabina in there it had photos of Wasson and Roger M., the French mycologist. But but that, that was kind of like part of the basis of a lot of the work that was going on in the 60s. And then, look, in the 70s, um, with Paul and other people, as cultivation was starting to take off, and, and uh, um, at, towards the end of my time at the mushroom farm, I mean, after seven years of really, I mean, I was working six days a week at times. Uh, and uh, I knew and met Paul, and he'd already put out a book on um, um, psilocybes that was on identification. Mm -hmm. And so um, we decided to create the Mushroom Cultivator. It took about three years to actually write. God, can you imagine, Tony? I was, I was writing my section on a typewriter, <laughs> not even an electric typewriter. You make one mistake and, and then, you have to you and then, rip the whole page out and start again, you know? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you're using whiteout and all sorts of funny things to, you know. And then uh, he actually had bought one of the very first word processors. And so we actually put it all into electronic form. And it was, you know, one of the original sort of books in that period that was coming out and it was done electronically. But but that, that was published in 1983. And at that point in time, as um, it was sort of like coming after a lot of the original small little manuals on how to grow uh, psilocybes on sterile grain. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of popularized that particular method of actually just, you know, sterilizing grain, uh, inoculating it, growing it right out of the grain from the jar. And this sort of took it to the next level and uh, actually uh, demonstrated how to use uh, bulk substrates, uh, talked about what was really going on there, whether it be the casing layer and what that was all about and the different stages of mushroom culture, sterile culture for one, which was really cool. I mean, teaching people how to use petri plates and to get cultures from a live mushroom or from spores and all of that. So that that book was really kind of the beginning of, of um, I guess, educating people to real methods of uh, growing mushrooms from lab 
right on through to the mushroom itself. Yeah, because I guess the best resource before that book would have been like the Terrence McKenna, Dennis McKenna book, uh, the Psilocybe Mushroom Growers Guide, I believe it was called. And I guess that focused more on kind of a much simpler method to just like, you know, just allow you to grow these mushrooms, just figure out a method so you don't have to go to Mexico, you don't have to find them in the wild. Well, your book went much deeper into, you know, and probably because of your, you know, history with agaricus cultivation and understanding how those mushrooms grow and taking everything you learned there and bringing it to uh, something that's easy for anybody to kind of digest and understand and, and learn from. Well, well, you know what, the, 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 the beauty of it was, look, with the Psilocybe cubensis, it is similar to agaricus in the sense that it's a pasture mushroom. Uh, with cubensis, it's even better because it grows right out of dung. So it adapted perfectly to every step in agaricus mushroom. So it was very easy to use that method to grow, grow it. And, and at that point in time with that book, you could grow it on a much larger scale than actually, as you can imagine, than actually trying to grow these mushrooms out of a jar. And uh, so, so yeah, it was a real step forward in sort of, let's just call it the, the history of home cultivation in the United States. And, and look, the, the beauty of it in a way too, was that it took the pressure off of Mexico and people going down there to find the mushrooms down there. Um, believe it or not, and some people don't know this, but in, in the late sixties, they had so many people flocking into Oaxaca up into the areas where Wasson had been and buying mushrooms, eating mushrooms up there, um, populating the whole area, walking around very high, that finally the Mexican government in 1968 decided to, to close off the area. It was that bad. So they came in and they, they put up a roadblock at every entrance to that area in the mountains there in Oaxaca. And they then after they did that, they went in and they rounded up every single young person that was down there and deported them. Wow. And that that the sealing off of that area in Oaxaca, and this is the area where Maria Sabina is, this is the, the Mazateca, um, that lasted for probably 12 years or so where they did not allow anybody in there. And you had to sneak in if you actually wanted to get in there. Um, and, and that was, that was uh, so interesting because once people knew how to cultivate them, that sort of changed the whole dynamic of, you know, we no longer have to go to Mexico to find these mushrooms. We can now grow them or we can go out and find them because that was part of the mushroom conferences that we did in the late uh, 70s was all about the fact of, hey, these things are available, right? The Pacific Northwest, if you know how to, how to, uh, where they grow and, and how to find them. So, so that was a huge shift. And, and um, it's funny because I, I went back to Oaxaca in 2002, went up to Wautla and <laughs> there was like three Mexican hippies up there that was it. There were no gringos at all. It was just kind of a forgotten area. And not only that, now uh, what happened is in the 1990s with Maria Sabina becoming so popular and she became uh, like a saint mm -hmm. in Mexico, really highly revered. They're now having a yearly mushroom festival in 
outlook. And so it's, it's gone from actually excluding people to, to now having a festival and like, hey, come on to our festival. So it's, it's such a change compared to what it was in the 60s where this was, you know, and, and look, a lot of people knew about this area back in the 60s and they just wanted to go and find them. Just like today, so many people want to go to, to uh, South America and find a shaman for ayahuasca or things like that. Well, that's what it was like in the 60s, only the Mecca was uh, Mexico. Now, if you can go back to your frame of mind in the 60s and the 70s, I guess the 80s when you wrote this book, when you were thinking about um, psilocybin mushrooms, I mean, the narrative, the public narrative around these things has changed dramatically over the years. You know, uh, but more recently, it's coming back to a much more positive narrative. Obviously, you're seeing all sorts of research being done on anxiety and on depression and addiction treatments. You're seeing documentaries like Fantastic Fungi. You're seeing you know big businesses that are starting to build business models around turning psilocybin into a therapeutic agent. Could you have imagined this is what 2022 would look like? And you know, using that same point of view, what do you think it's going to be like over the next few years? Do you think we'll eventually swing back, or do you think it's going to be this? Again, this renaissance, but a, a, a change in the public narrative where more people are understanding the potential power of, of these mushrooms. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people, I think, don't truly understand the prohibition that was going on back in the 60s, 70s, and so on. Because literally um, in 1965, they started to criminalize all of this. So any of us that were, whether it be smoking a joint or or ta- eating mushrooms or taking LSD or something like this. I mean, it was against the law. People went to jail. It was a serious thing. So you were always kind of having to look over your shoulder. And and, and um, even with these mushroom conferences, it was interesting because people were like, okay, we're going to talk about these things. Um, it, it's going to go on. People are going to eat them at these conferences, but it's still not fully legal. Um, so, so you could do sort of things like that, but you know, when it came to buying and selling or possessing or anything like that, well, you had to be very careful because if you got caught with it, you could end up, certainly you'd end up in court and, and you could end up with jail time. And so, you know, the fact of the matter is, is I never actually thought after going through the Reagan area era and just say no to drugs and all the rest of the drug war, the Clinton years and and I never thought, for one, that cannabis would ever be legalized. I mm-hmm. thought, no. And and then now to see the prohibition lifted for uh, psilocybin mushrooms and for other M- MDA and ibocaine and all these different psychoactive plants, I- I'm I'm really um, encouraged. Uh, I'm I'm very happy. I think it, if we could move away from pharmaceuticals, for God's sakes, that would be a tremendous tremendous shift that I support a hundred percent. I do not support pharmaceuticals in any way. Uh, I, I mean, I, at times there may be some that are worthwhile, but, but really for me, that whole pharmaceutical model, I think is, is not helpful uh, and does a lot of damage as well as some, some positives. But if we can uh, in these issues, like you talk about, whether it be addiction whether it be mental health issues, um, end of life issues, if we can use something like um, psilocybin or some other psychoactive plant, 
man, I'm all for it. And I support it 100%. And, and the, the um, clinical trials that have come out and just the fact of, of uh, physicians like now, now in Canada, Tony, I mean, I was at a, a, attended a seminar uh, four or five months ago online. There was 100 physicians uh, listening in this seminar to another. He was a psychologist who was treating people in his clinic with psilocybin. Wow. And the interest in it from from physicians, from MDs, was amazing. I was just like, God, there was a hundred people here listening to this guy. And so I just thought, what a positive, positive sign that this is happening. So so I'm, I'm quite encouraged by it. Um, politics, the winds of politics, you know, the winds change. So you could get the wrong person in there and they could come right back down hard for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, because right now, as you mentioned as well, there are many, many companies looking at, for example, um, psilocybe mushrooms as the next big train like cannabis to jump on and make millions of dollars. And that's unfortunate. I, I mean, I've probably talked to at least a dozen different companies that have that business model where, okay, we want to start out. I talked to one this morning, actually. Uh, um, we're going to start out and we're going to put out a line of functional mushrooms. Mm -hmm. But where we really want to go is psilocybin mushrooms and, and put them out, whether as a, um, you know, nutraceutical product or, or supplying other markets. But I think everybody who's in that space and is, is thinking about the cannabis model and how many millions of dollars they can make if they get into this at the right time and with the right amount of it. And, and that to me is unfortunate because I don't support that really at all. I certainly support it. If you want to come in and, and, and create a, a line of nutraceuticals, fine. But the, the rest of it, I really don't support it. I, I support it in terms of, of the use for, um, whether it be psychologists or doctors. I also support the use of, of them in uh, recreation as well. I see nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. So, so for me, that's great, but I don't like the, the gold rush mentality that gets mixed up in this whole business, so to speak. That, that really puts me off. Yeah. And I guess if you, you know, if you, if your frame of reference is, oh, look what happened to cannabis, you know, why, let's go do the same thing in mushrooms. You know, even though some people might hold those two things in their head as being very similar, they're extraordinarily different, right? And I think maybe part of the natural tension uh, for these companies is that, you know, psilocybin, it, it can be very effective, uh, but you don't need a heck of a lot of it. You know, it's not so, like something that you would consume every day for long periods of time. Exactly. Uh, like you would with cannabis, for example. True. And, True. I, I, you know, I think, you know, people, and we'll talk about functional mushrooms too. I definitely want to dive into that, but you're right again, you know, a lot of these companies are like, okay, well, we want to do something with mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. It's a hot space. It's going to blow up. But in the meantime, you know, we need something else to have some sort of revenue generation. And of course, functional mushrooms don't have any of that gray area and they have lots of different benefits, but they're, you know, they're very different things. You know, I guess the, the line between functional mushrooms and psilocybin mushrooms is obviously that psychoactive component 
Um, but, you know, they're, they're very different things and, and used in different ways, which I guess, you know, the difference you could say, well, what about microdosing, right? Um, which I, I would like to get your opinion on. What do you think? Like, what do you think about microdosing? Is this something that um, is efficacious? Do you think it's a placebo? Do you think it's just something that people do? Or what's, what are your opinions on, on microdosing in particular? Well, you know what? I think it's a fad. Um, I think it's for people that want to be cool. Um, and, you know, I think it's more of a placebo than anything else. Um, it's, and, you know, but maybe, maybe that's just a, a way to slowly introduce the whole idea of consuming psilocybin into the population in a slow way. But, but I mean, look, 100 milligrams, uh, 200 milligrams of mushroom powder. I mean, you're not going anywhere with that. And does it actually heighten things? Well, you know, if you get up to a threshold where maybe you're starting to, you know, get some uh, enhanced colors or or some other, you know, energy type patterns or something, well, maybe you can get up to a place where it would be interesting, but does it actually enhance your cognition or is it a true nootropic for you? Uh, that's a real gray area to me. And placebo is certainly very strong and and being part of the cool (laughs) kids, so to speak, is the other side of it. And yeah, I I have to tell you, I was kind of shocked when I was in Vancouver recently and seeing that there are actually stores (laughs) on in Vancouver that are selling microdoses, you know, encapsulated bottles of microdoses in Vancouver. And I thought, you know what? Vancouver's always out in front of everywhere. It's kind of like the Amsterdam of North America, you know, and uh, but uh, for me and, you know, I've had conversations with uh, Dennis McKenna on this. Dennis is a friend and, and, and he's really shakes his head at it as well. You know, taking a serious dose of psilocybin is a very profound experience Um uh, and and one that can be very beneficial if done in the right way, set and setting, and these types of things taken into consideration. Um, and and also, you know, a lot of people would maybe take some psilocybin and, and they go to a party and drink and all that, and then it maybe acts like a speed that kind of keeps you awake and alert, things like that. If you take it at a maybe a gram dose or something like that. So so I don't know. It, we're we're kind of back in that age of experimentation. Um, and the only thing I can say is at least today, there are guides, there are a lot of information, you know, think about this for a second in the sixties, we really had no guides at all. We could read about shamans. We could, we could, um, you know, listen to Wasson or maybe Timothy Leary or somebody that, but we had no guides. It was total experimentation. So, so that's where to some degree, the the authorities could come in and say, oh, you're doing this in a way that is is um, detrimental somehow. And some people, of course, like with any particular plant or drug or whatever, are going to abuse it and create situations so they can point to those and say, oh, because of that, we're going to make it illegal. So so it was a very difficult time that way. Um, and not only did we have no guides, but we also had the police that we had to worry about. So it was so different than today, especially Tony being in Canada, where look, we've had relaxed 
restrictions on these things for a long time compared to the the south compared to the united states i mean that's one of the things that i've always appreciated about canada is not very many people have gone to jail for cannabis or for mushrooms mm -hmm. so that's a very positive thing whereas in the u.s the jails are full of people that have done nothing more than been part of the cannabis culture or or mushrooms or what have you. You know, look, I can literally say this. I've got many friends that have gone to jail. You know, how many people do you know that have actually gone to jail for cannabis or growing mushrooms or something like that? I've got half a dozen friends that have. Yeah, that's it is pretty wild to think about. Um, and, you know, but on that same point, it is still kind of a gray area. Like you mentioned Vancouver. You're right. It's weird. You can walk down. I forget what street I was there. You could see there's, you know, right on the main. Seymour, Seymour for one and, and Davies the other. Seymour or, or Davy, either one of it those. It just says mushrooms. And I thought this can't be real, but it is. <laughs> and um, it seems to be a pretty low priority. Um, and it's just this kind of active civil disobedience that seems to be working and again to me it's very yes. reminiscent of what was going on in the early 2000s or the early knots with like mark emery and the cannabis culture in vancouver yes very similar absolutely absolutely they're just kind of pushing the envelope a little bit and it just kind of portends the beginning i would say of probably decriminalization and ultimately you know legalized in some way much like cannabis i mean i can see that uh, coming, but they're going to have to have a lot more restrictions, I think, than they have with cannabis. But, but still, you know, the key thing is, is that we have more people to look to for uh, information and guidance, mm -hmm. and that's what's so different from the '60s. It was this was something absolutely brand new, and not only was it new to those of us who were actually using these uh, plants, but we had the pushback from our culture that was very, very strong and powerful. Yeah. And I, I do think that's interesting. You mentioned we do have a lot of guidance now. And, you know, as these rules change, hopefully they become a lot more sensible. But it still comes down to a lot of the times of people that are making these laws and making these rules. And I've been following a little bit like the decriminalization or the legalization that's happening in Oregon. And there's just some really goofy stuff that's going on that just makes you think maybe we're not getting smarter. Like, for example, one of the things I was reading about was they're going to restrict which type of substrate you're allowed to grow these on because there are wood loving <laughs> mushrooms that are poisonous, like oh. Gallerina marginata, for example. So you're not allowed to grow Psilocybe cubensis on wood because it could be confused with a poisonous <laughs> wood. It makes no sense. So, you know, oh they're mentioning, God. well, you could grow it on something else like popcorn or something like that. So it's, <laughs> it's literally like, you know, people are just going on the shroomery or something and finding these myths or finding these like untruths and building policy around it, which is really strange. And I think we need people who really understand this stuff to lead the policy, but that, that doesn't always happen. Yeah, it's funny. It's kind of like the more things change, the more they stay the same. And... and <laughs> You, 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 you have people out there that are, that are just, you know, bureaucrat regulatory types that love that. And they look at any little thing and they will decide, oh, no, you can't grow this on a certain substrate because of like what you mentioned. And it, it makes absolutely no sense at all. But, but senselessness is uh, very common for those types. Yeah. And the other thing I thought you mentioned was kind of interesting. Um, 
kind of sad, actually, the fact that you know people that are in jail for this type of thing. But then, you know, by the same token, you can have, you know, people like Michael Pollan, who wrote an awesome book. I think it's really great and really changed the minds of a lot of people on these substances. It's called How to Change Your Mind. But, you know, he talks about his personal experience with psilocybin and these other psychoactives, which, again, I think is great. I think it's a great book. I think it really has opened the floodgates for a lot of people to kind of try and understand this stuff. Um, but it's just so funny. You can see such a difference between some people that can you know, talk about it and that's totally fine. Whereas other people, you know, they might be growing a, a PF cake or something and end up getting in, in legal trouble. Uh, it's just such a weird time. Oh, oh, it is. But, but again, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I, I feel, uh, have a very positive feeling about the fact going on right now. And I'm just, I'm just hoping that that the government doesn't decide to, you know, um, digress, let's say. And uh, because, you know, I mean, governments are really all about control. And, and this is something that is very difficult for them and, and certainly difficult them in the 60s. Can you imagine a whole a whole generation of, of uh, um, young people in the 60s that said, well, you know what, maybe the alcohol is not all that great. Maybe maybe we should just smoke weed instead. And and and, you know, the culture just going crazy over it like are you uh, out of your mind well yeah maybe maybe we were but but we were rejecting a lot of things and and that was something that they really could not handle i mean look part of what was going on too tony which you have to remember was we were in the middle of a war hmm. and, and my generation was being drafted and drafted means that you have to go whether you want to or not uh, so that was another thing that was happening where, where we just looked at the government. They're lying to us um, and, and they're taking us away to kill people uh, 5,000 miles away in some small peasant country. And it was an insane, it was an insane time. There's just a whole lot going on back then. Yeah, and it almost seems like, uh, you know, it's, it's another cycle. And there's a lot going on now. It's obviously different, maybe of a different magnitude, but... Uh, it seems like we're at one of those moments where a lot of things are changing. Um, and this is just one small part of it. But uh, I agree. It is a really interesting space to follow. And uh, over the next few years, um, I'm really excited to see see where it all goes. I did, on that note of the cultural shift and the awareness of mushrooms, I did just want to quickly get your opinion on fantastic fungi. Obviously, this has been a, a thing. You know, once it hit Netflix, it had an explosive effect on the whole mushroom space from again, nutritional and functional mushrooms to psilocybin mushrooms. Have you seen the film? What did you think about it? Uh, what, what are your views on Fantastic Fungi? Well, you know what? I mean, I love the images of that movie. I mean, the images were just incredible. I, I mean, uh, plants are, are very interesting, but to see mushrooms through the time lapse, and, you know, you can just imagine, too, the whole idea of, for humans to see these mushrooms growing, uh, and, and you know, it's it's kind of like um, when when I talk to a lot of people and they say, "Oh yeah, mushrooms," they just seem to come up overnight. And I'm like, "Well, you know what? Actually, most mushrooms do not come up overnight. They're actually there. They have been there for probably a week anyway." But the reason you think that is because you didn't even notice them until they reached a certain size. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, there's that mushroom. It wasn't there yesterday. Yes, it was there yesterday. There's very few mushrooms that come up that quickly, maybe a caprinus or something. Or maybe if you're in the tropics, 
But uh, where we live, no, mushrooms come up. It takes them weeks to get up to full maturity. And, and But getting back to fantastic fungi, I loved the time lapse. I mean, the t- it, it wasn't that just the most incredible thing yeah. Yeah. that you could imagine seeing these things grow and go through in, in such a sort of a, a quickness, you know, in 10 seconds, what takes them a week or something. I mean, it's just, it was beautiful. I, uh, Louis, uh, the, the man that did all of that, God, I just can't imagine the hours of yeah. setting up your camera and, and waiting and getting the right moment and all of the rest. I mean, it, what a, what a, uh, um, work that he produced. So yeah, I, I, I like the film. And I think the beauty of the film was that it really introduced people, um, who weren't as aware, which most people aren't, of this whole kingdom of fungi, which is, you know, it's out there, it's sitting there between uh, um, plants and animals. We're finally starting to appreciate it and learn more about it. Um, You know, that's just kind of like when I think about um, the fact of growing mushrooms and, and working on a mushroom farm in the 70s. And I talk to people today, Tony, and I say, have you ever uh, um, uh, been to a mushroom farm? No. Maybe one out of a hundred says, yes, I've been to a mushroom. Do you, do you know how they grow or anything about it? Well, no, nobody knows it. Why? Well, because they're grown indoors. You drive right by it. You know, maybe if it's a big agaricus farm, you're going, oh my God, this stinks. Something <laughs> yeah. like that. But, you know, as a mushroom grower yourself, you, you know what it, what it means in terms of people like, I had no idea how they grew, you know, uh, nothing like it's not like going by a field and seeing strawberries or or um, you know grapes or corn or something like that which we all know of. but a mushroom farm it's something very different and odd and kind of mysterious in a way um, and so so yeah I think I think anything and we're getting more and more information out to people now about mushrooms and so I I, I sort of feel like, you know, it's just been this very slow evolution. I mean, when I went to the mushroom farm and started there, I, I was just, you know, right away, I knew this mushroom was something that was powerful, that was uh, nutritious, even though classical nutritionists said mushrooms have no food value. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> because they have no calories, they have no food value. So, so, you know, to see it all of a sudden, like maybe around 2015 or so to really hit what I'd call escape velocity here mm-hmm. and, and now become something which I think is going to be more than just a fad and trendy. But right now, I mean, my God, every time I turn around, there's another article written about mushrooms uh, mm-hmm. on some aspect of mushrooms, whether it's food or whether it's just, isn't this so cool or isn't, or growing mushrooms or something. So I, I feel really good about it. And I think, um, you know, anything that can come out like his movie uh, is, is great and really helps to educate people to the wonders and the beauty and the benefits of mushrooms. Totally. And I think, you know, it's much like the analogy that you mentioned of how mushrooms grow. They're kind of like this 
you know, overnight success story, but it's not an overnight success story. It's been happening for a long time. And I think you can make the analogy to what's going on in mushrooms right now. Like you said, you know, it's been percolating for a very, very long time. And yeah, maybe sometime around 2015, 2016, it's kind of hit escape velocity. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, wow, what the heck? I didn't know mushrooms were, were so cool. And I'm sure guys like me and you are like, I know we've been talking about it for as long as we can remember. Well, well, so, well I know it's, it's almost like when you, when you hear a song from a new band and all of a sudden they they're like the thing and you go, wow, where did they come from? Well, they've been out there grinding it out for the last 20 years, you know, small clubs, pubs, you name it. And all of a sudden they finally reach the point where people notice. Absolutely. But I mean, people are, you know, learning about the benefits of these things. And maybe we can shift into talking about functional mushrooms because the medicinal mushroom, functional mushroom, I call them functional mushrooms, but you know, the non-psychoactive medicinal mushrooms are becoming obviously more popular, but it's not like it's something that's new, right? I mean, people have been using these mushrooms for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It seems new to a lot of people in North America, but there is a really long and storied history. And I think that's why it's not necessarily a fad. It's more so of a trend of a general kind of adoption of mushrooms and the benefits of functional mushrooms in North America. So you have, uh, uh, you're the, the founder and president of a business called Namex. Uh, B2B supplier of uh, mushroom extracts, mushroom powders, among other things. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that, about Namex, about what you do, about some of the passion behind mushrooms that you put into that company. So, so what, what are you doing with, uh, with Namex? My company, Namex, actually was certified organic um, since 1993. But there I am in China. I'm growing mushrooms over there. And I'm like, look, I, I want these products to be certified organic. So I took OCI organized and took OCIA to China with me in 1997. And we did the very first organic certification workshop for mushrooms in China in 1997. And, and that really started the whole process of Chinese growers getting certified. And, and look, the, you know, a lot of people are just sort of like, oh yeah, organic certification, whatever. I'm sure it really it's really certified or not. And then, and the, yeah, the Chinese are doing it. Okay. Well, I mean, these are German certifiers and, and you know that too. I mean, it's like you get high quality certifiers coming in and, and if they're doing, and we test, you know, all of our products too for heavy metals, for pesticides and everything. So it's a real thing, but that was 1997. And, and now there's like, you know, like thousands of tons of organic, mushrooms being produced in China. But that is literally the only place that you can go to actually produce functional mushrooms and then produce extracts from them. Um, and, and the products, I mean, look, the Chinese are amazing. They, they are such well-organized. They're, they're, you, you want to... Um, get something grown over there next year they're doing it it's it's really a, a wonderful place i i really like uh, my chinese partners over there they're fantastic people to work with i've been working with them a long time and, and that's something you know when i hear people like bashing china i'm just kind of like you know um it's really sad that people feel like they have to do that yeah and i like to think of it i mean one of the things I like to make an analogy. It's like coffee, right? So when you drink a coffee, I like a good cup of coffee myself. 
coffee comes from the places in the world where it makes sense to grow coffee. And some of the best places in the world, you know, if you walked into a Starbucks, you'd expect your coffee to come from maybe Guatemala or uh, Nicaragua or Tanzania, uh, for example, uh, which is, I think, where you happen to be right now. Or no, Tanzania. Where, sorry, where are you right now? <laughs> I'm in Tasmania. Tasmania. <laughs> Tanzania. That, that's close. Right there. Um, <laughs> It's close, right? As I was saying, I was like, that doesn't quite sound right. But either way, anyways, they have some good coffee there. So that's where you'd expect to get coffee from because that's where the not only the infrastructure, but also the climate and, you know, the knowledge. And that's where good coffee comes from. And, you know, a similar analogy could be made with mushrooms. But for some reason, people assume that something like a reishi mushroom, which has been grown in China for a very, very long time, They've done a very good job. They know how to do it. The infrastructure, the knowledge, the generational knowledge on these family farms is all there. But people expect it to be grown for some reason in the U.S. And I think there's just a there's a knowledge gap there that that needs to be filled. Absolutely right. And 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 you know, I mean, look, the other side of it, of course, is the the people that are growing myceliated grain products in the U.S. That's their number one club to bash me and anybody else that's producing products in China with, you know, and, and, and that's a subject, I mean, you, you know, well, too, I mean, the fact that in the, in the U.S. you have companies that are uh, growing mycelium on sterile grain, which you, you understand, like I do, is nothing more than grain spawn. <laughs> and it, it kind of reminds me. I have some right here. I don't know if you can see this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of not much different than I think back to, okay, back in the seventies when they're growing psilocybe mushrooms on sterile grain and they're actually growing mushrooms out of that sterile grain. Um, and now here you have people that are growing that mycelium on sterile grain. They're not even growing mushrooms from it. They're just harvesting that sterilized grain with mycelium on it, grinding it to a powder. The worst part about it is then calling it mushroom. That, that's what I don't like because, um, look, if you're going to sell that product, um, call it what it is. Uh, I mean, it's actually just tempeh that has been dried and ground to a powder. If, if you analyze it, it is starch. And, and we've done proximate analyses with this, which is uh, the most interesting thing of all because... What it shows you is that an approximate is a nutritional analysis. The nutritional analysis of those products, it just follows exactly the track of the grain itself. Yeah. And I'd be, so people that are watching the show might understand what mycelium on grain is, but basically it's an intermediary step in the, in the mushroom growing process where mycelium is grown out on a sterile grain, like brown rice or oats or sometimes rye. I think this one here that I was showing you, this is lion's mane on rye. And you need to add this like a, like a seed to another substrate basically to grow the mushroom. But I guess some people decided you could just grind this up and uh, sell that as a, as a mushroom supplement. And the other thing I find too is, is this whole idea of full spectrum, where I guess if you leave a bag of grain spawn long enough, it will produce little primordial fruiting bodies. And you could say, well, you know, it contains the mycelium, it contains the fruiting body. But I think if you did an analysis, and you've done a lot of work on this, if you actually do an analysis on the product, a lot of it contains alpha-glucan or exactly, starch. Exactly, exactly. Right? It's primarily starch. And, and you know, that, that's where... I, I did a study in 2015. It's called Redefining Medicinal Mushrooms. And, and look, you know, Tony, that just kind of changed the whole industry because I demonstrated in my study using, using analysis 
that those products were mostly starch with very little beta-glucan. And that was something that those companies did not want to admit to. And they didn't want to anybody to really know that that's the process and the fact that they were not removing the grain from the product. And so people who thought they were getting a mushroom product were actually getting mostly grain starch. And, and not only was it unethical, but, you know, you had people with naturopaths who were actually prescribing those products to people when, when somebody had a life-threatening illness. And it was just, it was just so, um, to me, uh, unethical again, that this was happening, to be calling these products mushrooms, or like you say, full spectrum, that was kind of like the bait and switch. Oh, it, it's got the, and, and they call it fruiting body. And, and look, I don't like that term at all, because we're talking about a mushroom. But they say, oh, my mushroom has a fruiting body, it has mycelium, it has spore, it's got secondary metabolites. I mean, it's, it's just simply uh, kind of um, a way, trying to capture the word mushroom. When in fact, look, there's only one thing that's a mushroom, and that is a mushroom. And, and I, I hate it when I hear people talking about fruiting bodies because, hey, that's a mushroom. Why don't you just call a mushroom a mushroom? <laughs> it's like, no, no. They use that to define their products and say, oh, our mushroom has all of these parts. No, 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 no. Not at all. This organism that we call a mushroom actually has three plant parts, and that's mushroom, mycelium, and spore. Mm -hmm. That's it. So, you know, don't talk about full spectrum in this whole. It's just a, it's just a way to obfuscate what they're actually selling. The other thing they do is say, oh, our product is fermented. Uh, you know, so we have fermented mushroom. No, you don't. You are fermenting grain. You're not fermenting mushrooms. You're fermenting grains. And no, it's not, you know, it, it's a fermented product much like tempeh is because you're selling tempeh. That's what you're selling. So I push back on that. Boy, did I catch a lot of flack and, and none of those companies like me very much but <laughs> what that has done is now now actually companies selling these products will actually put on their labels x amount of beta glucans so so you know trying to get some kind of standards for this mushroom product that was not there before has been very very important to what we do at Namex. So that whole part of analysis, we love analysis. We think it's very important. Mm -hmm. And so we analyze for all of the compounds that we feel are very important. And, and I think that's ultimately what you have to do to claim that your product has at least the ability to produce benefits. You know, a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, I, I, I gave it to my brother-in-law and it, and it cured his this or cured his that. And they use anecdotal information. Look, <laughs> it's anecdotal information. Um, right. You can't, with those products, you can't claim things if you, you know, for example, don't have the beta-glucans that you should have if you're mostly starch, if you don't have the ergosterol that you should have that actually can demonstrate that this is a genuine product. And, and that to me is what I think you have to do. You know, doing all these studies with these products, oh, you know, I'm going to do this in vitro or this in vivo study. It's meaningless in my opinion. Okay, it's great. Researchers can do all that they want. 
They can come up with certain um, uh, results on that. But the bottom line is if you're in business and you're selling a product, well, validate that product through analysis and demonstrate the fingerprint that you have is what you should be seeing. And we do that by we've got a fingerprint for a dried mushroom and for every single species we have that fingerprint. And then we want our products to follow that fingerprint and show the same profile. Yeah. And when you say fingerprint, you're referring to the HPLC uh, fingerprint when you do the analysis chemical on... fingerprint yep 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 like the the, the beta glucan the alpha glucan the ergosterol which is uh, done by hplc ergothionine the same i mean those are important those demonstrate that you actually have a fungal product not not a a cereal grain right so just Quick to frame it up for people too, you talk about beta-glucan, which obviously is one of the most important uh, compounds in the mushroom. And it is the compound that is you know, responsible for, among other things, immunomodulating the immune supporting benefits of mushroom. But can you explain in simple terms, what is a beta-glucan, where is it found, and, and what is it doing for our bodies? Well, you know, a beta-glucan is a, uh, a polysaccharide. <clears throat> so, so this is a, a chain of sugars. It has a certain branching to it, which is very important. Um, so this beta-glucan, and, and this is what makes one species different from the other, is the branching. And what I call is the architecture of the beta-glucan. That, so that's why a reishi or a turkey tail is, in fact, um, have immunological potentiation capability, whereas other mushroom species really do not, or they do on a much lower level. So that branching is very important of the beta-glucan, and that will differentiate one species to the other. Those beta-glucans, we have receptor sites in our uh, intestines that are specific to beta-glucans, which is interesting. And there's a whole you know, program on that. But the fact that when we eat a mushroom or whether we supplement with a mushroom, those beta-glucans will uh, link up to those receptor sites, and that will stimulate the production of immune cells, whether that is T cells, macrophages, so different cytokines. And, and that's, to me, to me, the way I like to look at um, functional mushrooms is they um, sit in the background. They're, they're like, I, I think mushrooms are preventive medicine is what I think. They, they really are there, just like if you take a vitamin, why are you taking a vitamin anyway? Where you say, well, you know what? I might not be getting enough vitamin C. I might not be getting enough vitamin D. That's why I'm taking a vitamin. It's prevention. And I look at mushrooms in pretty much the same way. And I think that's the best way to look at them. You don't look at them and say, oh, God, I've got a cold today. I'm going to take some mushroom supplements and tomorrow is going to be gone. That's not how it works. And I don't care how many people on Amazon come back and say, oh, <laughs> this product is amazing. You know, it cured my this or cured my that. Look, they work over the long term. You, you have to incorporate them into your health regimen. That's what you have to do. It's not something that you just do for a week and go, oh, great, that cold is gone and I've cured myself of that viral uh, illness. No, no. You, you incorporate them just like I'm always telling people, eat mushrooms, put them into your diet. They're a very important food. You're going to get the beta-glucans in that food. Even before you supplement, eat 
mushrooms. They're a wonderful food. So, so back to the beta-glucan. So the beta-glucan is really the key compound in these mushrooms. And the scientists have told us that. And it's one of many, but it is the most important. And, and I think that's wonderful because it does help potentiate our immune system. Mm -hmm. So if we have some kind of, whether it's a microbial illness or something that is, is trying to challenge us, and I, I look at it in that way. Look, we're being challenged all the time mm -hmm. by different forces, whether they're microbiological or something that we've eaten or whatever it is, we're, we're being challenged. And so this just helps us meet that challenge. Um, and that's why you have to be consuming these regularly. And that's part of prevention. Um, just like, to me, the foundation of health is our diet. Mm -hmm. our, without a good diet, you're not going to be healthy. And, and look, the, these mushrooms are not going to help you either if you have a terrible lifestyle. You're not eating right. You're not exercising. You're, you're just, you know, you're drinking too much. You're smoking, whatever it is. No, they're not going to help you that much. You really, they're part of a broader holistic picture of uh, health, a uh, functional health program, how we adapt to the world around us. And, and the beta-glucan in mushrooms is the absolute key. If your uh, so-called mushroom product doesn't have beta-glucans, it is not a functional mushroom product, period. Absolutely not. And that's where all of these myceliated grain products fall flat. They do not have any, you know, most of them, the ones we have, have tested and we test all the time are 5% or, or less of beta-glucans. Actual genuine mushrooms are 25 to 60% beta-glucan. What I, what I think is very interesting about all our beta-glucan testing, which mushrooms have the highest levels? Turkey tail and reishi. And I just thought, God, that is just fascinating to me. Turkey tail and reishi, highest levels of beta-glucans. God, that is just so interesting. Yeah, and those are also the ones that existed and were used long before we could test for beta-glucan. So it just kind of proves, it, you know, it almost proves the efficacy of, of, we know these things are working, we know these things are doing something, why are they doing this? And then the science discovers, of course, it's the beta-glucan located in the mushroom. There's different ways you can extract it, you can actually test for it, you can put it right on the label to show what's in it. Because at the end of the day, right, people are taking these mushrooms, these functional mushrooms, because they're looking for some sort of benefit to their health. They have some sort of health goal they're trying to achieve, perhaps a problem they're trying to address. And the thing that does it is the compounds inside of the mushroom. So you can call it whatever you want, but at the end of the day, it's the compounds that are in there that are actually making the difference, which just you know brings back the, the idea of the importance of you need to get the product that actually has the compounds. And you know that comes from the mushroom and it comes from proper extractions of the mushroom. And luckily enough, we can test for that, right? So- oh. Man. Well, listen, <laughs> Tony, just, just on that, can you imagine? I'm, I'm traveling through China in the 90s. I'm visiting all sorts of factories. I, I'm at conferences. People are coming up to me left, right, and center. Would you like to buy my product? And, and I look at it, and it's a brown powder. I, I'm like, 
all I'm seeing here is a brown powder. I do not know what you're selling. You say it's a shiitake extract or reishi extract. How do I know mm -hmm. that it's a, a product that has any value unless I can test it in some way? And God, back then, you know, in some cases you're using a polysaccharide test, which is an absolutely useless test because it also measures the alpha glucans. Mm -hmm. So, so the fact of now today having the ability to run multiple tests is just an absolute game changer and has brought the whole mushroom category up to a much higher level to where we can actually have some certainty that that product has the ability <laughs> to provide benefits. Yeah, and I think consumers are getting smarter about it, right? I mean, um, it's still kind of a complex story to tell. I think a lot of people, they just want the benefits of the mushroom. And when you start talking about mycelium on grain and all this stuff, they just kind of say, oh, forget it, right? Like, I'm just going to go with somebody I know and I can trust. <laughs> but, you know, I think consumers are becoming more aware of it as mushrooms are becoming more and more a thing, more and more of a thing. And like, for example, you mentioned it, sometimes you don't know what you're getting, but there was that study... I think it was done in 2017 where they tested a bunch of random mushroom products and they realized that like 75% of them didn't actually. That was the United States Pharmacopeia that did that, I believe. Is that the one you're talking about? Or are you talking about the Megazyme AOAC test or, or paper? Uh, I, I believe it was the former and they tested a bunch of reishi products and they were trying to say, well, yep. okay, how much Ganoderma lucidum or how much reishi is actually in this product? And not only did they, they're finding you know, they were assuming maybe we we're going to find some pretty low levels, but sometimes they're finding products that didn't have any. And it's just like, well, what is that? You know, and exactly. it could be something that's high in maltodextrin or it could be something completely different because consumers get this, you know, this dark powder, like you mentioned, and they might not know what it is. I mean, if it, if it tastes bitter, I guess that's a pretty good clue. Um, but again, the good thing is you can, you can test for those things, right? Especially in ratio, you can test for beta-glucan, should have really high levels of beta-glucan. You can test for triterpene too, should have high levels of that, depending on what type of extract it is. So um, I think we're getting to a point where more and more people are becoming aware of the, you know, the subtle difference, not, the not so subtle differences between all the different types of mushroom supplements. And I think uh, it's great. You know, the smarter the consumer is, the better it is going to be for, for the industry as a whole. Oh, I, I totally agree. And, you know, that, that study by USP was a really important study, and, and they showed that only five of the 19 products that they tested actually had uh, um, the proper polysaccharides, the proper beta-glucans there, and, and even had triterpenoids. So it was really a, a great study. And, and the same with the, the AOAC study that used the Megazyme test, um, and, and it was great to have those published because at the time after uh, publishing my white paper, uh, Redefining Medicinal Mushrooms in 2015, I didn't have a lot of backup for that. But those two studies came out and they completely validated the work that I had done in that paper. So it was really important for me that I had other groups. And this was USP uh, as well as AOAC, which is the actual organization that will validate uh, analytical methods. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And again, that paper, if, if anybody listening or watching wants to go read it, um, it's available on your website, namex.com, and we'll put a link in the description so uh, people can, can go ahead and read it. Again, it really goes in depth. There's a lot of information in there 
it's not, uh, it's obviously super clear and super digestible, but uh, it definitely goes in depth, which I think is awesome and totally needed. Um, what are you seeing, you know, we're talking about functional mushrooms up to this point. What are you seeing in the future? Of, of course, we've seen a huge wave of growth towards people learning about these things, towards people using these things. What are you excited about over the next couple of years, say three to five years in the world of functional mushrooms? Well, you know, you know there, there have been a couple of things going on in the industry for some time now, which are disconcerting to me. One of which is, you know, in the natural products industry, Tony, and especially in nutritional supplements, there's been a real push uh, to make them uh, uh, adhere to pharmaceutical standards. And there's a lot of people in the industry who have not been very happy about that. Uh, I, I have not as well, because um, the fact is, is that we're not selling pharmaceuticals. We're selling natural products. We don't want to be pushed to the point where, you know, some people, for example, would look at a um, uh, heavy metal analysis and they maybe they would see zeros there and think, oh, this is wonderful. Zero, 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 zero. No, no lead, no no arsenic, no cadmium, no mercury, anything like that. I would look at that and I'd say, there's something wrong here. <laughs> it's not a natural product anymore because you don't have any of those there. Um, so it, it's that is one of the things that I, I worry about uh, as they push more and more and more for natural products to, to look like a pharmaceutical and be judged uh, by pharmaceutical standards. And for those people who think that the supplement industry has no regulation, you have no idea the regulations that we go through and what we have to adhere to to produce a product and put it into the market. They are very strict. That does not mean the product's a good product. It could be a myceliated grain, so, and it could meet all the standards. Um, um, otherwise, I, I'm really, um, it's wonderful that we've reached this point with mushrooms and fun fun functional mushrooms and also mushrooms as food. Uh, I think that's a really wonderful trend. Uh, I think, you know, there's so much innovation out there right now. Um, and we're going to see all sorts of interesting new products. I mean, my God, as a raw material supplier, we're supplying all sorts of beverage companies now. Mm -hmm. And that has been really interesting in and of itself that now, and, and I don't know if you've looked at the beverage uh, um, coolers these days, but all of those sugary drinks are slowly being moved out, phased out to some degree. And now we have a lot of functional beverages that I think uh, are so much more interesting and, and have real benefits, not just some, you know, monster or, or Red Bull or Coca-Cola or something like that. So that's an area that I'm really, um, really enjoy and, and think this is something that's been necessary for quite a while, e even as well as, you know, just the, the vegetable drinks and things like that. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. The other thing is um, more and more of functional mushrooms being put into food products. Mm -hmm. and I, I think that's, that's a, a great trend there, you know, some people, it's kind of like, yeah, they're putting mushrooms in everything. Yeah, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> but, but the fact is, is it's just, it's just so interesting. The, I mean, you know, just in terms of food products out there now and the innovations of young people like yourself and, and um, all of the new companies that are coming out. And, and so I, I look at 
all of those trends. And I just think it's really a positive. Um, I don't know um, what that might mean in terms of are we going to get to the point where where we are, for example, coming out with a lion's mane product and, and they built it up uh, um, to have higher levels of hericinones or something like that. By the way, I don't know if I talked to you about this, but we just did a study on lion's mane with a, a Japanese scientist and uh, we tested different lion's mane mushrooms and then we just tested a bunch of lion's mane extracts. Well, it turns out that the level of hericinones in lion's mane varies a lot according to the basic raw material. Hmm. And, and I was just sort of thinking all along, well, no, it's, it's probably pretty much the same in most of these. Not at all. In fact, then I, I found a Korean study that showed, depending on the, the particular cultivar that they were uh, using, the levels of uh, hericinones was from one to like eight uh, percent or something like that. I mean, it was really the, uh, I mean, and it wasn't exactly one percent or eight percent, but it was like there was a broad uh, difference between them, and that made me think, God, here we go now. Now we're going down this whole thing of, you know, like with reishi. Look at the cultivar. The cultivar is going to be uh, the amount of triterpenoids that it it uh, will produce depends on the strain, de- depends on that cultivar. Uh, that was very clear to me right from 2000, but I never expected that to, with, to be something like a, a lion's mane and hericinone. So uh, these are things, certainly as, as Namex moves forward, that we're really investigating and we're going to have to look at the cultivar, lion's mane, which one produces the the let's just say the the best amount of hericinones um and that that's where certainly we're going because again we, we really believe in the active compounds we're not trying to build them up at this point but someone's going to come along and start to do that as well yeah and just to frame it up again for people listening so the hericinone is the compound in the lion's mane mushroom that is responsible for the nerve growth factor or kind of the brain boosting benefits of lion's mane. And you mentioned standardization, which I think is really important, right? I mean, uh, harking back to us talking about psilocybin and like how much that can vary depending on the mushroom species and depending on the type of the mushroom or the part of the mushroom or whatever that you harvest, you know, functional mushrooms can be very much the same. That's interesting that you say that about lion's mane. I was, I was definitely unaware of that, but I think standardization is important. And did that play a role in your recent decision to start cultivating uh, turkey tail? This is something uh, relatively new for Namex, you know, instead of wild harvesting turkey tail, you're starting to cultivate it. Is that because you want to work on the, the cultivar and make sure that it can be standardized? Or what was the thought behind cultivating turkey tail? Well, you know what, wildcrafting is is just not um, it, it's, uh, I think wildcrafting is kind of a detrimental kind of industry. You go out, <clears throat> you're, you know, if, if something is of value, pretty soon they, they go and they collect it all. And the next thing you know, you've got a, an issue there. Um, with turkey tail there, you know, the wild harvesters, there's lookalikes that they, they can get in the, some of the turkey tail that could be harvested could be old. Um, there, and, and that's where, to me, cultivation is so much more important when you're dealing with trying to produce a product that is literally as much as you can the same all the time. Cultivation is really important. So I, I've been trying to get somebody to cultivate turkey tail now for five years. Nobody wanted to do it because, because every block 
has, you know, maybe it's got a dozen different turkey tail on it and, and they're all lightweight. Tony, it's like literally uh, um, the first experiments we did, I saw the greenhouse, I saw the turkey tail growing in there and uh, then I saw them all being laid out to dry and I went, oh, wow, that looks really great. You, a couple hundred kilos there. He said, no, 12 kilos. Went, what? <laughs> 12 kilos off wow. of maybe, I don't know, 50 blocks, 100 blocks. 12 kilos of dried turkey tail. It was just insane. And so nobody wanted to grow them because they just figured there was no real, um, uh, they couldn't make any money doing it. Well, we finally were able to get somebody to do it on a very large scale. So where they had tens of thousands of blocks. And last year we produced um, eight dried tons yeah and you know turkey tail it's funny though because turkey tail is one of these mushrooms it's not like it's super difficult to grow you know you compare it to something exactly cordyceps which has a difficult life cycle turkey tail mushroom you can basically just it'll grow on anything (laughs) like well it just wants to grow you know yeah yeah And, and the problem is is that you can grow it but then at the end of the day you're like god all of those mushrooms that i harvested and all i've got is five kilos it's just like yeah, it, it, it's not something that anybody would you know want to do a, a real industrial production of. It's just it's just you know it's a very lightweight, uh, flimsy little thing, and you dry it out, and it's just like light as a feather. Yeah, and you know I guess that kind of wraps up the the idea of of functional mushrooms in general. It's like you know it, it takes a lot of effort to produce these things. It takes a lot of effort to be done right, and you know the mushroom that you harvest is the final thing, but there's a lot of work that goes into it. And, uh, you know, I think that's something that, again, more and more people are starting to understand the purpose, you know, the importance of growing these mushrooms, the importance of, you know, testing for these compounds, the importance of putting forth a product that is actually going to make a difference. Because one of the things that always kind of bugs me is, you know, you'll meet somebody and they're like, okay, I, I tried, you know, functional mushrooms for XYZ thing I was trying to deal with, didn't do anything, didn't work. And you ask them, well, okay, well, like, what were you using? And they'll mention some type of brown rice or oat-based <laughs> thing. And you just think, okay, well, you didn't actually try mushrooms. And um, it kind of gives mushrooms a bad name for some people, which is which is disappointing. But again, more and more people, because of the great work that you're doing, uh, great work that a lot of people in this community are doing, educating people. The more people know about these things, the more empowered they are to make the, the better decisions in terms of mushroom supplements that they're using for their own health. So it's really cool to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's really, for me, it's encouraging that I see more and more companies on their labels and in their marketing materials, no grain, no mycelium, no starch. That to me is really uh, um, encouraging to know that that message has gotten out there and that now people are differentiating, just like having beta-glucans on the label. This is really an important step forward. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of things that you want people to know as we're kind of wrapping this up, is there anything else that you want to that you want to get in that I didn't happen to ask you during during this interview? Well, well, you know what? I, I guess for me, one of the things that I like to to do is just tell people, look, um, mushrooms are a very nutritious food. Um, most of the carbohydrates in mushrooms and they're mostly carbohydrate are are slow acting carbohydrates like mannitol, like trehalose, they're what you want. They're not this high uh, glucose sugar that you know will take you up and then back down. No, it's slow acting, um, 
They have a good amounts of B vitamins, uh, potassium, phosphorus. I just put mushrooms into your diet. Um, mushrooms are a wonderful food. Start there. If you're not eating mushrooms, get them into your diet. They're, they're uh, very important. Uh, all of the, the large tests that have been done out there um, in Asia, especially where they do a whole, what's your diet like? They find that people who eat mushrooms live longer. And, and I believe that. I really do. I just think there's something that is a very healthful food and they have a place in our diet. So I'm always just telling people, yeah, please put them into your diet. And if you feel like you, you want more, then think about supplementing, but get them into your diet first. It's a, just a very versatile, wonderful food. Yeah, I totally agree. No matter yeah, how you get them, uh, getting mushrooms in your diet is super important. And Yeah, yeah you're a mushroom guy. You're, you're right. You're a mushroom yeah. <laughs> guy. You, you've lived well, with you know, mushrooms. You know what it's like. Uh, yeah, well, and I experienced it myself too. Like quite honestly, I used to be one of these guys that got sick like all of the time. And um, again, we talked about, you know, sometimes it's not always the effect you feel right away. Obviously, it's, it's sometimes what you don't notice or what doesn't happen to you when, you when you introduce these mushrooms into your diet. And, you know, since I started really eating a lot of mushrooms and using a lot of mushrooms as a supplement, probably sometime around 2015 or 2016, it sounds ridiculous, but I haven't gotten sick like once really. And, and before, like I said, it was every three or four months, like clockwork, I'd get sick. And again, that's anecdotal, but you know, there's a lot of research to support the immuno uh, benefits of, of mushrooms. So I, I can't agree with you anymore. I mean, uh, put mushrooms into your diet. You're not going to regret it. Of course, if, if people don't like them, well, there's lots of ways you can get them into your diet nowadays, whether it's, you know, mushrooms in your coffee or just get them to cook them. You can get someone to cook them properly and you'll probably enjoy them a lot more anyways. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, look, Tony, I just want to say that, that, you know, I really enjoy what you're doing. I love your videos that you put out. I mean, you're doing such a fabulous job on there. It's just wonderful to see and you're spreading the message. And, and I, I just love that. And every time I see a new one of your videos, I'm just like, God, it's, you're doing such a great job. And so now that you've got your podcast and everything, man, just keep doing it because it's so you're really spreading the message and spreading the word. And uh, uh, I just, like I say, I love what you're doing. Awesome. That actually means a lot, Jeff. So thank you so much. And yeah, I'm super happy doing it. I mean, uh, spreading the spores or spreading the message of mushrooms is something we really enjoy doing. And there's going to be plenty more of it. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, about Namex, uh, where would you point them to? Well, uh, website's namex.com, N-A-M-M-E-X.com. We've got a lot of educational material there. And also our retail site is realmushrooms.com. And there's even more information on that site for people. And again, I, I really just like to see people get educated about what's going on with mushrooms. And both sites have a lot of that kind of information there. So come to the site, check it all out. Um, lots there to see awesome and yeah i highly recommend going to check out both of those things jeff chilton thank you so much for joining us <clears throat> excuse me thank you so much for joining us on the mushroom show i think people are going to get a ton out of this episode so i really really appreciate your time you're welcome and thanks for having me tony great to have this conversation with you absolutely yeah and say hello to tegan for me <laughs> all right okay <laughs> thanks so much jeff you're welcome have a good one see ya bye so that was awesome. Obviously, Jeff, again, is an absolute wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, that interview went a little bit of a different direction than I thought. He's been around for a long time. Like I said, you know, started to get interested in mushrooms in the 70s, all through the 80s. Um, an incredible 
array of different um, topics, everything from psilocybin mushrooms, which we dove into a lot more than I thought we would, uh, trips to Mexico and uh, really writing the book and teaching people all about those things. It, it's really great to get all those views. And I think, again, Jeff Chilton is such a uh, important part of the mushroom space and the mushroom industry. He's doing some really cool things in terms of moving the whole industry forward, in terms of quality of his supplements, testing some of the cool things that they're doing. Um, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And again, if you want to learn more about Namex, if you want to learn more about what they're doing, make sure you post the comments uh, or you check the links in the, in the description. And also if you have any comments or whatever, or if there's stuff you want to talk about uh, in future episodes of The Mushroom Show, make sure you let me know in the comments. Again, I'm trying to make this a show where we can come every week, connect with the mushroom community, bring on cool guests, talk about different topics, talk about mushroom news, and make it the one spot that you gotta be at for the mushroom revolution that is happening right now in front of our eyes. So thanks again so much for being here. Thanks for watching The Mushroom Show, and we will see you in the next episode.